Well, we got a pretty special show, and we're going to start it in a special way, right? Our usual sort of pregame warm-up section of the episode. Uh, this is a congratulatory one. I want to give congratulations to my boy, co-host of this podcast right here, Mr. Jordan Helly. Our boy's getting married, folks. That's right. Congratulations to Jordan and his new fiance Lauren, for their engagement. Just happened this past week. Congratulations, and, and perhaps the congrats on, on behalf of the listeners as well. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. Pretty exciting weekend. Um, the the real credit goes to, to Lauren, I think, for putting up with me all these years. And, <laughs> and I'm sure there was a little bit of, all right, finally, finally. Um, so that was good. No, it was good. We went out to uh, the Blue Course out in Wailea uh, on the fourth tee, which has got some great vistas. Uh, because where else the golf course, right? That just, it seemed like an, an easy way to go. <laughs> you know, some people pick more romantic settings, like a nice dinner or something. I was like, well, you know, this is, it's got a nice view. We went out a Friday late afternoon, kind of around sunset. So yeah, it was, uh, it was exciting. Exciting weekend. I actually haven't confirmed if she said yes to the proposal or the yes for me asking her to get back up off of one knee. It's always a little bit of a struggle getting up. So I, I actually haven't confirmed, hmm. uh, but so far so good. Yeah. We'll, we'll go check the tapes and run it through the replay booth and uh, make sure make sure that we've uh, we've gotten consent. Well, well, we'll just leave the congratulations on the table for now until it is fully confirmed. But no, uh, really, really awesome. You guys are a great couple uh, and, and so very excited for you. And with that, I guess we should introduce the guest that we're going to have on the show here in just a few moments. It is none other than Carissa Moore. That's right. Five-time champ, Carissa Moore's had quite a year capping the WSL World Surf League schedule with her fifth world title, the first ever Rip Curl WSL finals at Lower Trestles in San Clemente, California. Moore trailed Tatiana Weston-Webb after one heat of the best of three final matchup, first time they ever applied this format to decide a world champ. She would storm back, winning the decisive third heat, 16.60 to 14.20, and all this after winning a first ever Olympic surfing gold medal earlier this summer in Japan. She's the third female to win five Five world titles joining Stephanie Gilmore and Lane Beachley, who each won seven. Uh, how do we encapsulate this latest massive accomplishment for the 29-year-old Punahou alum Carissa Moore, Jordan? It, it really is. You know, she, she won her first one like 10 years ago, and she's not even 30 yet. <laughs> you know, it's 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 amazing. What what a what a year. What an absolute year for her. And that's just like, you know one of five world titles and then you throw in the gold like everything about her is incredible she's the sweetest um and and the best in the world at at, at something and it's just amazing absolutely amazing and uh pretty cool pretty cool that she's repping the the hawaiian flag on on the shirt right every time she's out there yeah we talked with eric logan ceo of the wsl last week and how lucky is eric logan to take over at a time where he now has a five-time women's world champ who is the embodiment of humility, who seems to have such a spiritual connection with what she is doing on top of being this fierce competitor, being the competitor that she is, but also appreciating surfing for the very random and natural 
and and organic art that it also is. And so, I mean, she's as talented a surfer as I've ever seen, and she has got to be undeniably uh, the biggest star in the game right now. And so uh, congratulations to her. Uh, such an accomplishment to be able to come back when she was down and really back against the ropes. And this is the first time of all those five world champs this is the first time that she was able to be crowned while in the water, which was another objective, according to uh, CEO Eric Logan. So, um, hey, without further ado, let's just get to the top story. It is our guest. It is the Carissa Moore interview. All right, Carissa, it's great to see you. Congratulations. Uh, what a year it's been. And it's just funny, like to the victors go the spoils and to the victors also comes the hassle of having to do a bajillion media interviews the next day. So uh, I'm just wondering, like, how many interviews does this make here today, the day after your big win? Uh, I've, lo I've lost track of this. I haven't been keeping count though. No, but it's, um, it's so funny because I woke up this morning and I didn't sleep that much last night just because everything was like replaying in my head. And I was like, I turned to my husband. I was like, I don't want to do interviews today. And he's like, you know what? Suck it up. You won yesterday. And that comes with it. So you better be happy and grateful. I was like, you're right. You're right. So no, thank you. I'm really happy to have the chance to talk to you. Well, it's it's always a pleasure. And uh, maybe you lost count of the interviews, but obviously easy to keep count of the fact that you're now a five-time world champ. It's just such an incredible achievement and accomplishment. And uh, I guess my first question, just to get right to it, is uh, where you see that sweet spot of of surfing and competing at the highest level. Surfing is such an organic endeavor and you don't have control over all of the elements and factors and variables, uh, but yet it is fierce competition. So where is that sweet spot of, of letting things sort of come to you within the context of a competition and also going out there and, and, and trying to be as, as cutthroat a competitor as possible? Yeah, well, I think it just, it depends on the circumstances, but like yesterday we had an incredibly amazing swell and it was a consistent swell. So there was a lot of ways and opportunities for all the athletes to surf. And so I didn't feel like there was as much of a chess game involved. It was more just about like getting your wave and doing your best surfing. And, and you still have to be fierce within that, but it wasn't so much like, oh, I'm going into battle against my competitor. It was more like, okay, I'm going into battle against the ocean and myself, um, if that makes any sense. You said something afterwards, too, where you were down one heat, right, in the best of three. And you said, you know, I, I made it a point to surf from the heart. When you say that, what, what, is, what does that mean for, for some of us on the outside? Yeah, I, for me, surfing from the heart means, I, I think for, for me, like, I went into the first heat of that match, of, of those matches. I felt like I was maybe not focused there's like, yeah, like you said, there's like this fine line between being like focused on the competition, but then also like letting go and just being in the moment and being grateful and just like going hard and giving it everything that you have and not letting your like doubts or what ifs or what could happen hold you back. And I think, I think too, there was a moment in the first heat that I kind of got caught up worrying about Tatiana. And I feel like I do my best surfing when I'm focused on myself and doing my best doing surfing, just surfing from my heart and going surfing. Um, and so I felt like I kept it a little bit more simple going into the second match. And it was like, okay, I'm going to be fierce. I'm going to surf hard and give it everything that I have, but I'm, I'm doing my game. I'm not going to worry about what she's doing. She's going to do what she's doing and um, let, let, let it, 
fall as it may. Yeah, Krista, you mentioned the competition, right? The, the brand new format to, to finish off the season. Uh, how did it play out for you? Uh, did, did you like the way that things were kind of set up, the single day format where you get to kind of scope out the competition and, and then get it in the water for, for the final? I like how it turned out. <laughs> I was a little, I was a little skeptical in the beginning. I mean, with any sort of change, it's always a little scary. Uncharted territory is scary. And so um, I'll, I've been competing on the championship tour for 11 years now, and it's all been done the same way. And I was just like, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how to even, there's different things. Like, how do I approach this day? Do I stay down and watch? Do I go home and come back like right before? Um, so I don't know. I, I thought it was, I thought it was a great day. It was a great buildup. I think with one day of competition, you're able to really capitalize on the swell. So you got the best day of surf. Um, it was, I, I, I just thought it was fun to kind of see the different matchups and see if like, the person in fifth or fourth could make their way to the final. And it was interesting just to see how it all panned out. And as a surfer in a part of it, like I was so glad that I was, I had the, the first seating from the season because I only had to surf three heats instead of possibly surfing six or seven. Cause I I'm exhausted today. And I only surfed three heats. I can't imagine like Tati surfed four and she was like, she was still bulldozing. Like she was still going. I was so proud of her, but like in the final, I was like, I hope she dies soon because I'm dying. <laughs> no, it was, it was wildly entertaining watching it from a television standpoint. I can tell you that on, on our end. And, and you mentioned there's no blueprint, right? This was completely brand new. And so you're figuring this all out. Um, but you did get the opportunity, you know, with the, with the Olympic format and winning the gold medal in sort of that um, shorter window, if you will, uh, what did you take from, from that experience in Japan and, and did it at all parlay into to kind of game planning for, for what you did yesterday? Yeah, no, definitely. I think um, it was it was similar as it was to yesterday with the finals. It was a winner's take all situation, which was the same situation with the gold medal and and the Olympics. It was a one event thing and it it's nerve wracking. It's pressure. There's a lot of pressure involved. I mean, you can put everything you have into this day and, you know, checked all your boxes. And unfortunately it's just not your day. Like you're out of rhythm with the ocean or it's just not what the universe had intended for you. And that can be really scary, but I think it really just, the Olympics taught me to just stay in the moment, take it heat by heat, one step at a time, one wave, one turn, that's all you can do. And anytime you kind of get too far ahead of yourself, you end up tripping over. So I think, um, yeah, just staying present, trying to like, I think even yesterday in the, in the finals, I, I ended up losing the first heat and I had 35, 40 minutes to turn it around. And I, I came in, I was a little sh shooken up. Like I was, I was like, wait, what's going on? Like started doubting my, my formula. And like, like I was tripping on like, okay, did I do everything I needed to do? Like what's going on? And I had only a matter of minutes to go from possibly spiraling in a negative space to, okay, I'm going back out there and I got this. So whew, yeah, it's all about learning how to let go and reset and focus on what's right in front of you. Well, in a surfing career that has seen you achieve to such great levels, 2021 has taken it to another stratosphere here. A gold medal in the first ever Olympic surfing competition. You win your fifth world championship in a brand new format. 
Um, I know you're not very far removed from what happened yesterday, but how do you start to comprehend and, and calculate what has happened for you uh, in, in, in your profession, in your craft here this year? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm just so grateful. It's been such a really like such a fun and special season of my life. Like I really enjoyed the journey this year and it was so great to have the year off last year, like COVID obviously, like I know that it was very hard on a lot of people and it was, it was hard on me in some ways, but there were some great positives and I got to actually like really rest and reset and, and kind of just have a new appreciation for like competing on the championship tour and surfing. And like, I was just so psyched everywhere I went. And I was like, Hey, no matter what happens, like I'm living, I'm living my dream. I get to do what I love and I'm riding waves and it doesn't get much better than that. So I think just having that, like, I don't know, the grateful approach really helped um, take me through the whole year. Yeah, it does sound like that. Just in, you know, hearing your interviews throughout the year and, and talking to you now, it seems like you are thoroughly enjoying and, and savoring what you're experiencing this year. Not just the winning part of it, which is fantastic, but it sounds like you're really embracing the everyday experiences. And I'm wondering, does that sort of mentality, that appreciation, does that then translate to making you a better surfer? I... I think so. I, I think so. I think, um, I think the, the best surfer is having the most fun. So I think that's, I think that's a quote from Duke Hanamoku. So I totally believe that I, um, yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun this year and I hope it shows. Yeah, I, I think so. Right. It, it, when you look at your success this year in particular on the championship tour, I mean, no, no worse than third in every single one of the events. I, I mean, it, what all kind of went into that? I, we hear you talk a lot about the being present, the 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 mental aspect of it, but but also getting a little bit of rest physically, maybe in that down year. But what what led to to that consistency, if you will, over you know basically what ten months or so? <laughs> oh well, thank you. I there's so much that has gone into this this year and this season. Um, I have an incredible support crew behind me. Um, I travel with my husband. My dad trains with me at home. I work with various coaches on the road, but um, the one that I worked with consistently throughout this year was Mitch Ross and he's from Australia. Um, I have a really great Ohana of sponsors that have never really put like a result pressure on me, but have just been like, Hey, like, what are your dreams? How can we support your dreams? And that's been, that's been awesome to not have like that outside pressure on me to have to perform and it has given me freedom. Um, I also just like, I work with a trainer a few times a week at home. Um, I work with a sports psych a mental coach and he, that's been great. He's really helped keep me accountable and on like a really good, like help helps, helps me clear what's in between the ears so I can go out and just do my thing. Um, and it's just a lot of surfing, a lot of training, hard work and stuff, but it's been so worth it. How much has that changed throughout your, you know, your professional career? I mean, you, you won your first as a teenager and now here 10 years later, you're, you're, you're still getting to the mountaintop, if you will, when it comes to the CT. How, how much has that changed over the decade in terms of your preparation, what you're doing out there uh, and, and leading to these results? I think a lot has changed, but a lot has stayed the same. I'm so grateful that I've had a, 
a dad, as a coach, who's also had experience as a competitive swimmer. So he's shared with me a lot of his approach and how his work ethic. And I've taken that, I think that's translated through my whole career. I've taken that throughout. Um, I think as I've competed, you, you ebb and flow with life. So what I'm going through personally definitely translates professionally and um, affects the, the motivation that I have. And each world title has, I've been motivated by something different. The first one was, oh, I want to do this for the first time. What's that going to feel like? Mm-hmm. And then the fifth one, this time I feel like I'm doing it because I love it. And I feel like the motivation has just been feeling like, hey, I feel more self-assured more in my own skin and just kind of going on this journey of really like learning how to back myself and trust myself. And, um, the, the end, the end prize is, is super awesome. But like you guys said, it's just like the best part of it is the journey is the grind is waking up early. It's doing the activations and the stretches. It's working with the mental coach. It's the tears on the beach, but then it's like getting back up and fighting back and like that's like, it's just an accumulation of like that journey. And so that's what makes it, makes it so special. All right. Well, it looks like we're uh, out of time, uh, Carissa, but uh, always a pleasure talking with you. And uh, I mean, it's just been such a a, a great privilege to see you grow up in this sport and to represent Hawaii uh, the way that you do. And so uh, congratulations, continued success and enjoy your championship. And hopefully uh, you don't get bothered by the media too much here for the next few weeks. Oh, it's never a bother. I really enjoyed chatting with you guys. It was um, a fun conversation and I can't wait to see you guys at home. All right. Big thanks to Carissa. That was uh, such a joy. She is uh, such a a wonderful person on top of being this incredible surfer. So uh, we can't thank her enough. We were interview number, I think like, I don't know, 85 uh, today in this press junket that unfortunately when you win the title, uh, you are forced to uh, experience. So uh, we, we give her a lot of credit for that. All right. Time to move on. And we switch it over to a little bit of University of Hawaii football. They ran into a beaver dam, and you could actually spell it D-A-M-N the way that game turned out. UH football experienced a veritable reboot of the week zero loss to UCLA at the Rose Bowl, falling behind early against another Pac-12 opponent on the road, this time Oregon State, in a 45-27 loss. Hawaii trailed 21-0 after the first quarter. They had been outgained after the opening frame, 219 yards to 36. Beavers quarterback Chance Nolan completed his first 13 passes of the game. Rainbows would get no closer than 11 the rest of the game. Nick Mardner went over 100 yards receiving with a tutty. Calvin Turner found the end zone three times. But then you add a little insult to injury. Linebacker Darius Muasau got hit with a targeting penalty in the second half, and that means that he's going to have to sit out the first half of the conference opener this week against San Jose State. So Hawaii is now one and two here on the season. How are you feeling about this UH team, Jordan? Uh, not not super confident, right? I mean, look, it's two Pac-12 opponents. One was a ranked, well, now is a ranked, I should say, opponent in, in UCLA, even though they weren't ranked back in week zero. Oregon State, a team that, that I think should be competitive in the Pac-12, but I don't think is going to challenge in the Pac-12 North, not with what we've seen from Oregon and, and now maybe Stanford kind of rebounding here. But but it is an, an improved Oregon State team, I think, a team that was trying to figure out what they were doing at quarterback. And now I think with Chance Nolan, what he has done in relief in week one at Purdue and now 
the way he started this ball game and really played throughout against the University of Hawaii. I think he's their guy until Tristan Grebia comes back from injury. And so look, the, the quality of opponent is pretty solid. Don't get me wrong, but I don't think Oregon State is head and shoulders above the top echelon of the Mountain West. That includes San, San Jose State coming in this week. And I think we <laughs> We will further learn whether or not this Hawaii team is going to improve or if this is kind of the telltale throughout the rest of the season. The, the defense hasn't been great. Like they're, they're giving up over 41 points per game through three contests, and that includes one against Portland State, right, where you figure, hey, that can maybe get some of your statistics back on the favorable side. They give up a ton of huge plays, and that is not a good recipe. We, we saw touchdown runs of 60-plus and 30-plus yards from B.J. Baylor at Oregon state who, who trampled all over the university of Hawaii. And that has been the biggest bugaboo so far throughout the Todd Graham era has been the lack of an ability to at least contain other teams, rushing attacks, right? I'm not saying they have to be locked down. They have to be a stout wall up there, but just preventing some of those long drives, those long, big plays. Um, they, they haven't been able to do that. And now what we're seeing, at least in the last couple of weeks, they're very susceptible through the air as well. And so you can't be porous up front while also giving up a ton of plays over the top of you at the same time. We saw it against Portland State. We saw it against Oregon State. And so that's now becoming a trend. Availability has been a little bit of a trouble, right? Whether it's been injuries, guys like Jonah Laulu unavailable against Oregon State, and then a guy like Darius Moussao, right, who, who had a cast on his hand week week two, if you will, against Portland State and then was basically absent for the second half and will be absent for the first half here against San Jose State. Would have been kind of nice to have him out there, right, when they were at least making a game of it when they cut it to 11 twice and needed some stops in the in the second half. You don't have your best defensive player out there. So, so that, that factors in without a doubt. The offense seems to be finding a little bit more of a rhythm. That is an encouraging sign, I will say. It is an offense that still doesn't, I think, have an identity. I love that they're getting Calvin Turner the football with much more intent, whether it's handing it to him, whether it's letting him take snaps out of the Wildcat with, you know, fullbacks and tight ends out there and trying to bludgeon teams, whether it's throwing it to him, whether it's letting him throw it. I don't think that's a bad thing at all. But Chevin Cordero is still a little inconsistent in this offense under 50% passing, really, in this game against Oregon State, although I would argue that he looked maybe as comfortable as he has all season long in that you know, third, fourth quarter where things were a little more free, things were a little more wide open. I think he operates a little bit better in that type of system. But yeah, it's it, it hasn't been consistent at all. Uh, the ability to contain defensively has not been there. And then offensively, it's just, it's been too much up and down. So yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think you can be too confident heading into a, a marquee matchup to start off conference play against the defending champs. I think the most disturbing aspect of this is in Hawaii's two losses to UCLA and Oregon State, they have been outscored in the first quarter by a combined 45 to three. And so as much as Todd Graham is talking about, we got to start fast and everywhere he's been previously, whether it be Tulsa, Arizona State or Rice or Pitt, uh, his teams were reputed to get off to fast starts offensively. Uh, but that just has not been the case here uh, so far in his tenure at, at University of Hawaii, at least the majority of the time. And so I'm not sure how to change that. That seems like something that could absolutely continue to hurt them if they don't find a way to correct that. I mean, they did so against Portland State, but you probably have to factor in the competition in the fact that Portland State hadn't played an actual game in almost two years. Uh, but that said, I think that's something to be concerned about, especially if you're going up against teams in these cases where 
the argument's going to be made that they have a greater multitude of superior athletes on their side, right? The Pac-12 athlete, Pac-12 power. If you get down in the hole like that against a team that is on paper constructed better than you, you're going to have an awfully difficult time getting back in the game. And I think you're right. I think the offense did show some signs, but once you're down three touchdowns, you know, it's, it's, you don't know what else is also contributing to that. And they pulled out all the stops with the wildcat and these other formations. Uh, They were trying whatever they could desperately to get something going on offense. And to their credit, they were able to find some level of success there. San Jose state is the defending champ. Uh, San Jose state is coming in one and one. They're coming off of a win over Southern Utah. They lost to USC pretty lopsided. I think it was 30 to seven, the final score there, but it was 13 to seven in favor of USC with then head coach Clay Helton after the third quarter and so that gives you a sense San Jose State might not be too much of a joke this year even though they lost a good deal of talent from that championship team and so I think this is a big time statement game for both Hawaii and San Jose State coming up it will be on Hawaii's home turf I think that is a distinct advantage we have seen that Hawaii seems a lot more comfortable even Chevin Cordero himself when he's in those familiar surroundings Uh, but if they don't get started better it's 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 just an uphill climb the rest of the way I'm with you. I'm with you. I, I think the the starts have been troubling, right? And and I don't know if that's a mindset thing. I don't know if that is a, a schematic thing, but they, they need to fix that. There There is no doubt. And, and really at this point, no excuse, right? We're basically a quarter of the way in and you, you got to figure out a way to start faster. All right. We switch over in a slow start to the season for the Rainbow Wahine volleyball team. They split a pair of matches with USC, uh, got a win on the first night in four sets, lost in four sets on night two. Uh, and that is nothing to be ashamed of a team that is a name brand out of the Pac-12 going one and one against them. Uh, this week also saw the emergence of a couple of international froshies, Ana Kirai and Anika Dehuda, but inconsistent play when it comes to the setting department, self-inflicted errors cost Hawaii severely particularly on that night too. They blew a 20 to 11 advantage in the third set. Seemed like they were mentally a little blown away by that occurrence. That led to a four set defeat. Hawaii is now three and five on the season. They are off this week. They'll have the green and white scrimmage uh, and then they'll hit the road to start Big West Conference play next weekend. Uh, What do you expect from the Rainbow Wahine in conference action based on what you have seen from them? And I don't think there's anybody that would deny they've been pretty inconsistent Consistent, not just match to match, not even just set to set. It's like point to point. Yeah, I, I think that's the, we'll see more of that. I think we'll see a little bit more of the the ebb and flow, the up and down with this team. That we talked about this. Uh, what was it uh, last week or the week prior? Right? They, they they look like a team that hadn't played, or at least a program that hadn't played since 2019. And then you think of all the youth, right? I mean, Taylor Ikenagi, your starter, is a true freshman. Like the 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 international freshman that you mentioned, uh, Martina Leoniak, even she she's a freshman, right? Uh, Mia Johnson, who has had some moments early in the season, she's a freshman. And then even some of your your veterans, even though they're what third year, so like Amber Igedi's technically a sophomore still. She's only got like one year of college experience. Some of these other players that have that have played big roles, they don't have a lot of collegiate experience, and some of them don't have any collegiate experience coming into this program, right? And I think you see that. And Brooke Van Sickle is the leader of this team, I think, on and off the court. And she can only do so much, right? And and it is it is a little tough, too, when your your best hitter is a little undersized, right? And and you need to be a little more creative in how you you get her sets in in critical situations. And 
And yeah, so you, you see that even in the win Friday night, right? Hawaii raced out to a first set victory and then got trounced in the second set. Like it was a blowout in the second set. They lose, then they win the next two sets. And it's like, okay, maybe, you know, it's like within these matches, there is as much of a, of a roller coaster effect as we see even match to match. And I, I just think so much of it is the youth. I think the encouraging thing is that you can see the talent. It is there. The, the, these young players look like, look like potential potentially stars for this team, for this program, but it's going to take time, right? It's going to take game reps. It's going to take experience. And the bummer there is your best player is like a sixth year senior, right? And Brooke Van Sickle, who you don't want to say, Hey, look, let's wait till next year when, you know, it's unfair to Brooke a little bit, but I think it's just going to take time. And I think we'll see that during conference as well. The, the hope is with all of the variables, with all of the fluctuations, you hope, that five sets is enough to kind of right the ship and you find ways to win matches, right? And you don't have to to maybe drop a match here and rebound to a match there. And the way the, the conference schedule works up, you, you hope that they they can kind of navigate these five match marathons and come out with a few more wins than, than maybe just splitting on a weekend like they did against USC. I think another thing is Hawaii, you know, we as a fan base and Hawaii as a program got a little spoiled. The last time they played a full season, 2019, they not only had one legitimate setter, they had two, right? <laughs> they had Bailey Choi and they had the setter slash hitter in Noreen Yosia. Uh, and so, I mean, that's an embarrassment of riches at that position. And now you're dealing with a situation where you have, you know, the transfer in Milana Bird, who did get some experience in the SEC at Alabama, but wasn't a full-time setter until she got to college. And then you have her backup, Kate Lang, who is still a freshman, has not played a full season of college volleyball coming out of Texas. Uh, and so you go from this tandem of as experienced a setter's core and stable as you can have to a, a stable of setters that is on the more inexperienced end of the spectrum. And I think that that has created a bit of a difference and obviously feeds into some of that inconsistency, some of the ebbs and flows that we have seen in terms of this offense and this overall transition. And so, yeah, I, I think experience points are huge. We've, we've talked about it already. They're playing catch up in that regard. And so you would hope that as this season progresses, uh, that they'll start to show some level of benefit from just getting more game reps in overall. All right, we switch back to the gridiron, and this was a weird week for Navy football. After a 23-3 loss to Air Force, Navy Athletics Director Chet Gladchuk fired offensive coordinator, former UH quarterback Ivan Jasper, to only then rehire him following the urging of head coach and former UHQB Ken Niumatololo. Jasper's been with Coach Kenny for 14 years. Now, you also had the situation with staff member, former UH receiver Billy Ray Stutzman, who was fired this week for failing to receive a religious exemption that would have allowed him to remain unvaccinated. Now, this with the background that the Pentagon previously announced all U.S. military personnel be required to get the COVID vaccine. Uh, that is nothing new, right? Military personnel are also mandated to get like 13 or 14 other vaccines as well. But what kind of look is this over? All, just this kind of calamitous week that Navy experienced. Yeah, it's just kind of jarring because if they're college football is fickle, it is tumultuous, there is constant turnover, except at Navy. Like they were the one program, right? And you can maybe say Nick Saban's Alabama or something like that over the last decade. But but Navy goes back even further in that, right? Paul Johnson and then Kenny Neomantulolo taking over. I mean, this is better part of two decades. Like even Chuck Gladchuck, the AD, he's been the AD since 2001 at the Naval Academy. You mentioned how long 
Kenny's been in charge, how long Ivan Jasper has been his offensive coordinator since Neil Montalolo basically got promoted from OC to head coach, right? I mean, their special teams coach has been on staff for like 20 years. Like that entire staff outside of like three guys has been there for the better part of a decade plus. And so Navy, they run their option, their coaches stay, they win football games. Like it is, it is like clockwork except the last couple of years, right? It's been a little up and down last season. They went three and seven in that abbreviated COVID campaign. And this year they're off to a, a terrible start. I mean, two blowout losses, if you will, 23 to three was the last week's decision. They scored 10 points in two games. It's not a great look. It didn't sound like Gladchuk really consulted Neil Matalolo on the firing. Thus, once they kind of the huddled and, and they bring Ivan Jasper back onto the staff in a, in a reduced role, Neo Montalolo will take over the um, the play calling duties. And then you got the, the Billy Ray Stutzman situation, which isn't necessarily unique to the Naval Academy, right? We're, we're seeing this pop up at different programs uh, around the country and really different workplaces around the country outside of, of college football and not necessarily here to debate the, the validity of all of this and, and, and whatnot, but, but it is one of those situations, right? It's like, Hey, look, there is, there is turnover. There is turmoil there. And just, you know, with all the ties to Hawaii as well, it's it's a program that I think a lot of people feel connected to. It is a lot of people, uh, a, a program that a lot of people root for um, as sort of a second team or a third team outside of the University of Hawaii and maybe your alma mater. And so to see this, it's just, it's a little, it's a little uh, disconcerting, right? It's a, it's, it's a little unsettling. It's like, no, 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 everything else can be chaotic, but like Navy football, that's supposed to be the one like constant in this wild, ridiculous sport, but not, not this year, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a little troubling, but uh, you know, I will say it seems like they still have a lot of faith in, in Neil Montalolo as the head coach, uh, even after a rough start here, kind of pointing the fingers at other directions, if you will. Yeah, I think that's the the part that sticks out the most is you have an athletics director who decides to sort of micromanage and as opposed to funneling everything through the head coach to make decisions, you're going to pick members of the coaching staff and decide to make changes. And, and I think that that superseding of the head coach's responsibility there is a tough look. Uh, and so I'm glad that they reversed field on that, that they reversed course. I, I think that you're right. Navy is just kind of in a tough spot right now. And, and maybe these are signs and indicators as to the fact that there is some confidence lost in the regime that is there. We love Kenny around here, so we definitely hope that he turns it around. I think he's built up enough equity, I would hope, uh, with his previous success there at that program uh, to be able to continue and, and see if he can right the ship. Uh, the Billy Ray Stutzman situation is tough because, you know, we know Billy, I know his family. It pains me to see somebody, you know, taking this particular stand and risking their future within this industry that he has obviously invested so much time and effort in. It's just, it's a tough place to be. And, and while, you know, I think there are, are reasons to find people taking certain stands, whether they feel like it is on a moral ground or a religious ground, you know, there, there's reason to find that admirable. Uh, this is just a tough spot when you see you know, everybody else surrounding him deciding to go with the either mandate or with the suggestion to get this vaccine. And, and I just hope that this does not make Billy Ray a, a sort of a blackballed entity for any reason. I think he's a talented young coach by all accounts. Uh, and so hopefully this doesn't negatively impact his otherwise would be progression in the industry.
Elsewhere in college football, USC fires head coach Clay Helton. Two weeks into the season, USC, who defeated San Jose State in the first week of the college football season, decided to part ways with Helton. This is just two days after suffering a 42-28 defeat to Stanford. So Clay Helton, there were a lot of people complaining about him. You had Keyshawn Johnson, who after that loss to Stanford, took to Twitter and just lit the match on Clay Helton and said, I have lost all confidence and basically said, I'm out as far as my support of his alma mater uh, because of the direction the program was going. And he wasn't alone there either. But if you had a say in the matter, say say you were calling the shots there at, at USC, uh, which is one of the all-time decorated story programs in college football, who comes to mind as being a suitable fit to take that program over. You had Urban Meyer earlier today, this is at the time of this recording, who said that no chance at all he would consider going to USC. Of course, we've heard that from other coaches in the past before they made decisions to leave programs, but uh, he's saying he's out. So if it's not Urban Meyer, or maybe you think it is Urban Meyer, uh, who else do you think it could be? Yeah, it's so interesting, right? Because Clay Helton, had some success there. I mean, he, he, he won double-digit games, I think, a couple of times during his tenure at USC. It wasn't He wasn't the big personality, I think, that, that has come to be associated with that job, whether it was, you know, I, I, this is since the Pete Carroll era, right, where, where that program was back on the map. They were the biggest show in town in Los Angeles for a number of years. Their, their, their players were superstars, right, winning national championships. And then even after that, whether it was Lane Kiffin, whether it was Sark, right? These these are guys who are a little bigger personalities. Clay Helton's a little more keep your head down, go to work, you know, all, by all accounts, a really good guy, but not quite the the shine that comes with, with coaching the team in Hollywood, right? The coaching the, the Southern California Trojans that comes with that. So I, I'm really curious to see where they go, right? Because Luke Fickle's name, has been thrown about, but he's not a flashy guy either. He's a defense first type of guy. Not that you can't win with that. We saw that with Pete Carroll, right? What, what, what he did in, as being a defensive minded guy. But Luke Fickle's kind of, you know, Midwest roll up the sleeves. So's Urban in a lot of ways. And, and by no means do I believe Urban Meyer when he says there is no chance. Like, no, nobody, nobody is taking that at face value. Um, you know, and, and so you think of guys like Luke Fickle, you think a guy, a guy that came to mind for me is Chris Peterson, who is another no frills guy, but wins a lot of football games and turned down the USC job in the past, but is now retired from his job at the university of Washington. Bob Stoops, his name has been thrown out there. One other name that I thought might be intriguing just to kind of throw it out of left field. There has been some discontent in Seattle. Like does Pete Carroll have any interest of maybe saying, you know what? I've, I've, I've kind of run my course here in Seattle. That USC gig was kind of fun. It will also want a lot. And Pete Carroll's a guy that I think builds a lot of culture, but also maybe wanes on you a little bit, right? He's a lot. And I think we've seen that from some of the ex Seahawks that come through, you know, he kind of vibes with Russell Wilson, but, but that has been a little, a little tenuous over the years. And so in college, right, you get those guys out of there in three, four years, you get the next crop in and you're, you're selling them the Kool-Aid once again. Right. And I think that's why it works so well for him at the college level, uh, as opposed to maybe his first couple of stints as an NFL head coach. So I don't know, just throwing that out there. Yeah, I'm making all those calls. All of the names that that you mentioned, if I'm USC, I'm making all those calls. I'm contacting 
Pete Carroll. I think that's very intriguing. Uh, there have been some reports about James Franklin, the Penn State head coach, and that there's actually mutual interest there. You know, I think that he's kind of proven that he can revitalize a program, and that's that's the need here, right? It's a rebuild, essentially, at USC. You know, another name that hasn't really been mentioned, but is obviously very well respected around Southern California, and I think uh, there was a thought that he could be in line possibly for another Southern California program had things not maybe gotten off to the start that they did this year, and that was UCLA. But Brent Brennan, the head coach for San mm-hmm. Jose State, working with a minimal budget and being able to turn that program into a Mountain West Conference championship program. I wonder if USC has sort of the same respect for Brent Brennan, of course, uh, he has connections to UCLA, so a little bit of a different consideration, perhaps. Uh, but I wonder if Brent Brennan's name uh, is another one that makes it onto the list of uh, to dos as far as people to contact. Uh, USC is an intriguing job, and I'm with you 100%. Urban Meyer, I don't believe a word he says. I can't trust him as far as I can throw him. We have seen that time and time again. So uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll take uh, what he says with a grain of salt. Switch it up to the pros real quick here. And week one in the NFL uh, came with some very competitive ball games, some very entertaining football overall, and also some surprises. So let's just kind of go there here for week one. Uh, biggest surprise from the first full week of action, in your opinion? Yeah, there's a few, right? I mean, some of the, the big headlines, right? Whether it's the Saints and Jameis Winston doing what they did to Aaron Rodgers and Green Bay, right? That, that that was big, even not even having the home game, right? They, they had to take the show on the road and go play in Jacksonville because of another hurricane down there. Uh, but the other one, to me, another team that got shellacked, but shellacked at home, uh, Arizona, who I think a lot of people felt optimistic about uh, as a sleeper team, maybe can get into the playoffs out of what I would argue is the best division in football, the NFC West. Uh, they went to Tennessee, a Tennessee team that has sort of hung their hat under Mike Vrabel on punching teams in the mouth, being physical, running the football, right, with Derrick Henry, uh, the play-action game under Ryan Tannehill, who has had a renaissance there in terms of his career since taking over the starting job at quarterback. I mean, they got they got blitzed by a Arizona team that hasn't necessarily hung their hat on power football, right? They've been a little more finesse. I think that's been the knock on Cliff Kingsbury, a little too much flash, not enough substance, um, if Chandler Jones is doing what he's doing on defense and Kyler Murray just continues to get better and better with all of those weapons that he has and, and DeAndre Hopkins is ridiculous and, and Christian Kirk has become a, a big play threat down the field like that, that looked like a really good team. The win maybe not as surprising, but the fashion that they went over there and just kicked Tennessee's tail, I think was, was a bit eye-opening to me. Yeah, that was a big surprise for sure. Arizona looked unbelievable. Um, and, and you know, I think uh, out the gate, at least, you know, overreaction after week one, uh, they definitely look like one of the contenders. I'm going to go a little bit of a different direction. And instead of like an upset surprise, uh, I'm going to go with how good Tom Brady looked. Uh, yes, I know he's coming off of a Super Bowl championship, and I know that it's Tom bleeping Brady, and this guy is uh, somehow reversing the effects of time, unlike anybody else in the history of football. But did you see his arm strength in that Thursday night game against the Dallas Cowboys? Uh, you know, it was a great battle between Tom Brady and Dak Prescott, but just some of the deep throws. I mean, Tom was zinging it. He was hitting targets. You know, a lot of his throws were just getting straight up dropped right? Or receivers were fumbling late in the game. He leads yet another game-winning drive at the end. 
Uh, I'm like, this guy is just stupid good. And I think to me, his arm looked about as strong as it ever has. And that hasn't necessarily been the case over the course of the last few years. There have been times where it was kind of looking a little noodly, but that wasn't the case here in week one. And so whatever Tom's doing, it's like, oh my gosh, is he like not just remaining pretty competitive at 44 years of age? Is he maybe getting better again? Like it's crazy. That was a shocker to me. Maybe, maybe he started eating tomatoes or something. Maybe he realized it's like, you know, I need some of that. I need some of that. It's going to strengthen up the rotator cuff a little bit. He was fitting balls in the windows to Gronk over the middle, like past linebackers ears, not just those deep balls, but like the, the throws where you got to really put some mustard on it over the middle. That <laughs> was a jaw dropped. Like, how is he doing that? His arm strength. I don't know what he did in the offseason. I went to Germany, got some of that plasma replacement or something. I don't know, man, but dude can sling it still. Maybe it was the uh, tequila from uh, last year's Super Bowl parade on the water. Like, who knows? Ah. I'm not sure what it was, but uh, it's some kind of special sauce, I think. Yeah, I mean, Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, like, they didn't even have their typical really good games catching the passes that were thrown right on the money. Like, imagine if everyone's coming through and Tom's zinging it like that. The Bucks are going to be awfully (laughs) difficult to beat. All right, that's it for our game time. Time now for our post game and our best and worst brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii Maui's premier full service refuse company offering various sizes of dumpsters and roll off containers for commercial construction and residential use. Family owned and operated with over 40 years of service to the Maui community, Waste Pro Hawaii is committed to customer service and responsible waste management. Visit wasteprohawaii.com for services information. All right, I guess I'll start with my best. Uh, And while I really was tempted to go with the cat that was dangling and fell into the crowd that was saved by the fans at the Miami football game, I'm going with Once Upon a Time in Queens. It is the 30 for 34 part documentary series airing on ESPN here this week. The first two episodes aired yesterday at the time of this taping. The last two are going to air later today. Uh, And it carries a ton of nostalgia and passionate memories For me, I'm a Mets fan and that 86 team, that sort of era of Mets baseball is the reason why I was a huge Dwight Gooden fan when he came up to the bigs in 1984 and was the rookie of the year, striking out over 200 people. Then he was the Cy Young winner in 85 going 24 and four. And, you know, it's been a very roller coaster ride for Doc Gooden since. And I, every time I watch any of these Dwight Gooden related documentaries, I'm always like praying that it somehow turns out another way. And it's a different, happier ending. Uh, That said, that team was so good. They had Hawaii ties with Ron Darling, who was born in Honolulu, Sid Fernandez, the Kaiser grad. They were just so stacked. They were like rock stars. It was like if Motley Crue was a baseball team, that was the New York Mets. They partied hard. They won a lot of games. They played hard. They fought hard, literally four on-field fights in the 1986 season. One of the best World Series against the Red Sox, of course, the infamous Bill Buckner play in game six. Uh, One of the best World Series ever, one of the best teams ever. Uh, and and uh, really harkens back to my childhood. So I'm, I'm loving that documentary. Yeah, just a reminder of how big a stars they were, right? And and how big baseball was still in, in 1986. And and yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, they went four-parter on this thing. So they 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 they, they thought it was worthwhile. It, it was pretty cool. I didn't watch it the full two hours yesterday um, in, in the first two episodes, but I caught a, caught a pretty good chunk of it. And uh, yeah, it, it, it's pretty interesting seeing some of the, you know, the, the cultural crossovers, right. And, and how the Mets sort of, sort of fit into 1986, like, uh, 
the cultural zeitgeist, right? And, and how that crossed over for good and bad. But uh, yeah, it's pretty cool stuff. Yeah, 1985, Dwight Gooden, arguably the best pitcher of all time. Just that season. I'm just his motion, leg kick, arm whip, everything about him was just so bleeping cool. All right, that was my best. What's your best? Uh, yeah, my best. Uh, circling back to Tom Brady. Uh, 300 NFL starts now after the uh, season opener on Thursday night last week. He is 231 and 69 in those 300 NFL starts. And uh, you were saying, you know, he might be getting better again. I, I've got evidence that that he's fallen off. First 550 starts, his record 116 and 34. His next 150 starts, he's only 115 and 35. So he's clearly falling off. He's slipping. Max Kellerman was right. I mean, you talk about falling off of a cliff. My goodness! Like every one every, game difference, one game every, difference. That's every amazing. time. Every time Tom Brady throws the ball, like Max Kellerman, does he just get like a knot in his stomach? Like he just went out there, like he was like, "This is gonna be the hill that I die on." The Tom Brady is gonna hit the skids here and fall off of a cliff, and his career is gonna be over. Uh, and that was like seven years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Unreal. All right, uh, let's go to uh, our worst here, and my worst is a former Met. Mike Piazza, I don't know if you saw this, but he took to social media to attempt to convince Californians to vote in favor of the recall of Governor Gavin Newsom in favor of Larry Elder, uh, which ended up not going that way. The recall was voted down. Uh, But he said that if that happened, if Californians voted in favor of the recall, he would then make a return to Dodger Stadium because his time with the Dodgers ended pretty close to 2000 when he actually went to the Mets, a tenuous and animosity-filled ending to his time with the Dodgers. He said he would make a grand return to Dodger Stadium and it's like okay nobody's really concerned about you going to Dodger games at this stage of the it's 2021 like if you want to go to a Dodger game Mike Piazza you can buy a ticket nobody's going to vote along political lines based on whether or not you're going to show up to Dodger Stadium I thought it was pretty ridiculous and I love me some Mike Piazza hit one of what can be described as the most important home runs in modern baseball history remember after the attacks of 9-11 in 2001 and then 10 days later the Mets host the Atlanta Braves in New York City and it was super emotional and he hits the go-ahead late game home run like it's one of the great moments but this particular Mike Piazza deal it is a thumbs down big time Mike Piazza I don't know what you're thinking man delusional yeah a little bit of a inflated self self-worth here like I know he I don't know what people associate him with more right is he a, is he a Dodger is he a Met I know that like the the ties to Tommy Lasorda and whatnot when he came up through the the Dodgers organization as a highly overlooked prospect. But yeah, I, there are a lot of Dodgers out there that I think would be checked off the list of favorite Dodgers before you get to Mike Piazza. If you were asking Dodger fans, particularly in the Los Angeles area, even if it was a worthwhile endeavor, I don't know if it really would have resonated either way. Like, eh, I don't know, Mike, you know, it's, it might be. It's been a few years. It's been a few years, Mike. Yeah, just, yeah. Just, you know, maybe sit it out. All right, what's your worst? Yeah, my worst. Uh, I'm going to sound like the the old get-off-my-lawn guy. These NFL number changes, I kind of side with Tom Brady here. I don't like it. I don't like it. I, I was giving it a chance. I was like, ah, you know, Tom's a little old. But I don't know if it's just, like, the, the broadcaster lens or, like, the old quarterback lens. Like, I like the old numbering system in the NFL. Everything fit in a box, right? You knew who the linebackers were. You knew where a guy was coming. You knew if it was a safety down in the box. You knew if it was a running back catching the ball out of the backfield and not a receiver. 
you knew what they were it's just now it's chaos now it's chaos and i'm sure everybody's loving it right new jersey sales kids can wear the same numbers as these guys like these guys can wear the numbers they played with as a kid when they were playing like literally pop Warner football or something um and so it has absolutely no effect my opinion but i just i, I don't like it yeah does it have because i think we had this conversation and i think you actually said unlike what tom brady was suggesting that there is no competitive advantage or disadvantage yeah via this this number new number system <laughs> but you feel like it does have a competitive impact I think for a guy like Tom Brady, for sure, because although we saw what he did to Dallas's defense, <laughs> um, but it, it, there is a little bit to it, right? Because you have rules, right? You, 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 the way things are set up, it's like, okay, we are aligning a certain way. If you're blocking, if you're lining up and, and you, you got to figure out your blocking assignments, you want an offensive lineman blocking either a defensive lineman or a linebacker before they're blocking a defensive back, right? And so it's a lot easier to process that information if you know that only certain numbers belong to certain positions, right? And if, you, if you're doing that, you want your running back blocking a blitzing safety as opposed to the linebacker or leaving a defensive tackle unblocked or something like that. It'd be like, oh, it's, it's plainly easy, right? These guys, are, they're different sizes in terms of human beings. It's like, yeah, you only got 15 seconds when you get up to the line of scrimmage to process all of this information. So I think it will take a little bit of time. And look, they're doing this in college. They've been doing this in college for years. And so you'd be like, Look, the boo-hoo, right? These young quarterbacks trying to figure it out. But it, I wouldn't say it's like a huge schematical advantage or anything like that. But I think it does take some of these old-time guys, whether it be Rodgers or Brady or Russell Wilson, some of these guys who have been in the league a while. Like, it'll take a little bit of getting used to, for sure, right? And especially if some player that you've been been lining up against all these years has a completely new number, it's like, oh, what happened to Charles Woodson? I thought he was 24. It's like, psych, he's now four. or so, You know, it's like... It's, there's a little bit to it, but it's not a huge deal. Don't get me wrong, but I just, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't love it. I'm not necessarily going to kick people off my lawn on this one, but when they go to double numbers, like you see in college where you have a defensive player and yeah. an offensive player <laughs> with the same jersey number, that's when I am going to protest. I'm going to be shaking my fist at the cloud and, and shouting at people from, from my porch because uh, that's where I draw the line, the double numbers. Uh, this current number system uh, hasn't quite affected me so personally just yet. All right, that's our best and worst. Brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii Maui, owned Maui, operated for Maui's people. Hit us up on Twitter at Kanoa Leahy, at Jordan Helly, or at Talk Sports 808. Big thanks and congratulations once again to Carissa Moore. Jordan, congratulations to you once again as well. Talk to you again next week, bro. Thanks, man.